the age of the universe is about 14 billion years, which is something like 10 to the, I've done these calculations before, 10 to the 17th. The fastest time scale in the universe is the Planck time scale, which is 10 to the minus 43rd seconds. And there's about 10 to the 80th particles in the universe. So if you imagine the 10 to the 80th particles in the universe were doing nothing at each Planck time moment, but making proteins like 200, um, here's how long it would take to make all possible proteins like 200. It'd be the age of the universe times 10 to the 37th power. So we are making an incredibly tiny fraction of all possible proteins like 200. That means the universe is vastly non-ergodic, non-repeating, at levels of complexity above atoms. We will not make all possible complex molecules, will not make all possible mountains, we will not make all possible organs or organ systems or organisms or whatever. There's an infinite sink in complexity going up. Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. I've been excited to release this episode. I was eager to chat with today's participant, Dr. Stuart Kaufman, because he has an ability to uh, <laughs> to communicate some things that are pretty difficult to understand. So I, I, I found, I came upon Dr. Kaufman by way of John Horgan, whom I interviewed in episode 37. Check that episode out. Uh, John has done some amazing work. He does a blog at Scientific American. He's written a book called The Mind-Body Problems. I, I really enjoyed that piece of work, and in particular, Dr. Kaufman's section. So I'll just start throwing out all these links, but then we'll uh, I'll get to Stuart and introduce Stuart, and then we'll get started. If you go check out mindbodyproblems.com, it's chapter four. It's titled The Complexologist, Tragedy and Telepathy. You can get a bit of information on Stu after you listen, or even now. Um, a couple of things that uh, that could be helpful in it referencing before you listen to the conversation is also uh, not only that, mind-body problems, but also the UN report that came out on the extinction. They're estimating that uh, a million species will be extinct by year 2050. And, of course, Stuart has a way of helping us understand that that's beyond what I possibly could do. And, uh, and it worked. <laughs> I'm grateful, Stuart. Thank you for your time. Thanks for the conversation. This is helpful. I'm currently reading. I, I was One of the things we did is I, I, we talked about his book, Reinventing the Sacred, A New View of Science, Reason, and Religion. And I believe, when did it come out? It came out in 2008. Let's see. Sorry, I know that's annoying. 2008, yes. And uh, his most recent book, titled The World Beyond Physics, The Emergence of uh, the Emergence and Evolution of Life, just came out May 1st of this year. And I'm reading through that now. He's just 
a wonderful writer, and here's one of the reasons why. I'm going to borrow from John Horgan here. This is an article that John wrote in uh, the Scientific American on his blog, John's blog, Crosscheck. Uh, scientific seeker Stuart Kaufman on free will, God, ESP, and other mysteries. He begins, few living scientists are as ambitious in their choice of problems as Stuart Kaufman. He's a polymath with a degree in medicine and training in biochemistry, genetics, physics, philosophy, and other fields. He roams across disciplinary boundaries seeking answers to the riddles that obsess him. Why is reality so beautifully structured rather than being a chaotic mess? How probable was life? Is evolution enough to explain life's origin and diversity? How does a brain make mind? How do minds choose? Kaufman has held appointments in many institutions, notably the Santa Fe Institute, a center for complexity studies, where John first met him in 90. Uh, he, he proposed that our scientific understanding of reality is radically incomplete and that some sort of anti-entropy, order-generating force remains to be discovered. He spelled out his ideas in his books, Origins of Order, 93, At Home in the Universe, 95, and he's gone on. Um, so one of the, this piece that I'm getting at is actually present in, um, John has a great way on his blog of Scientific American with linking all kinds of different articles he's written. So if you check out uh, John Horgan's blog, you'll find a lot of information on Stuart and a lot of great information. Uh, I know this is about Stuart Kaufman, but I have to kind of tip my hat to John for directing me to Stuart. So now to uh, to Stuart. He's written six books, numerous papers, and today we, well, I'll just get into it. We have a, a great conversation, and I am, uh, it's really, I really appreciate meeting people like uh, Dr. Stuart Kaufman, who so easily um, is able to articulate himself on these, uh, these ideas that we hear a lot about, but we kind of take for granted, or we don't really have enough time to investigate, and he does a good job of it. Um, to music, uh, let's see. So today's music you heard a little bit earlier off the track, uh, off the record Lonely Land uh, from 2000 um, that Bob Schneider made. Madeline is the uh, is the song, and it's we're going to finish today's episode with the song Metal and Steel off that same album. So hang around after the episode, you'll hear a good song. Uh, the other things of note, the music in the podcast, the theme music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, this podcast can be found at thesacredspeaks.com, also at iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, and others. What else? Anything else? No. Um, I'm going to be including links in the liner notes. I keep calling them liner notes. That's just old school, I guess, but I'm going to call it liner notes. I am going to include links in the liner notes to some of these articles that Stuart references, uh, certainly to his books and, uh, and to the music. So as is always the case, uh, uh, my uncle one time said that really the burden is on the listener to go follow the threads that are presented. And I really liked that. I certainly take that, take that on. I, I want to investigate where these people that we hear, um, you know, in podcasts and the like, they'll direct us and, and follow those threads. This is important stuff. It'll open things up. I've read a number of Stuart's articles. Uh, certainly this podcast is about following threads, but also follow the music thread. This, um, 
listening to all this music has really changed, transformed life in a wonderful way. I mean, when's the last time you listened to the entire catalog of somebody's music? And that's what I do to pick some of these tunes. So I'm grateful you're here. Uh, thanks for listening. Stuart, thanks a bunch, man. I am uh, I'm grateful. And John, thank you for directing me to Stuart. So for now, we'll leave it there and get to the conversation. Dr. Stuart Kaufman, as we've been going back and forth saying, uh, <laughs> I've certainly been excited. You're sweet to say that uh, your excitement grows because this, this content is really fascinating. One of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you is not only all the wonderful things that John Horgan has written about and said about you, but after reading your book, Reinventing the Sacred, you, you, you speak a lot of languages. You're well-versed in a lot of languages. And what I loved is that you, you led off this book talking about the injuries that you'll address, and, and one of them being the split between the humanities and the sciences. And my bias has always been over onto the humanities. It's religion and philosophy. And yeah. I, I've, as a psychotherapist, oftentimes we neglect um, the biology, the sciences, um, but biology for one in particular. And the opportunity to be able to talk to somebody who speaks so many different languages is really exciting. And uh, so I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to jump in today and, uh, and thank you. You're welcome. Let's see what happens. I wonder if we could start with, uh, with that split, the humanities and the sciences, and talk about uh, as much as you can, kind of why that happens and the consequences that we're dealing with these days of the split between the humanities and the sciences. Jay. <laughs> well, of course, you know C.P. You know Snow's uh, The Two Cultures. It's, yes. uh, I guess he wrote it in the 70s. And he decried the split between the arts and the sciences. And more or less, complained. at that time, as I understand it, the literati in the art, art world, whatever the art world is in England, held upper sway in terms of cultural impact. And, and science was relatively downgraded. Uh, that he, he noted that most scientists could quote a little bit of Shakespeare, but most people in the literary world hadn't any idea what the second law of thermodynamics was. And that's, that's largely true, you know. <laughs> Guilty, okay. <laughs> that, that is still true. Uh, so why don't we back up and, and try to see where this comes from. Um, can, can I take us to a really strange place to start? Go wherever you want to go, it, yes. It's roughly in the in, in the Greco-Roman world, where I think science and art really lived together. After all, we had we had uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles at much the same time as we had Socrates and the Peloponnesian War. So art and science uh, lived together. Then um, I'll try to remember the sources I get this from. Oh, there's a wonderful book called The Passions of the Western Mind. I can't remember the name of the author. It's a spectacular book. It starts with the early Greeks, and it ends up with in the year 2000 with postmodernism. So when when Christianity came along, uh, Saint Gregory basically said uh, the present life doesn't matter. What matters is life in heaven or hell. 
ignore the current actual physical world and concentrate on, you know, the next life and where your soul will go. And to summarize my impression from reading this book, for roughly a thousand years, let's say in the West and in particular in, in, in Catholic Western Europe, uh, reality, physical rea reality out there was just ignored. The big change apparently occurs with Thomas Aquinas. Again, this is from The Passions of the Western Mind. And Aquinas says, you know, the book of nature is written by God. Therefore, studying nature can only reveal the truth of God. So Aquinas more or less permits the Catholic Western world to begin to examine the actual world, the, you know, the world out the window, as well as the next world. And that leads to the scholastics, which leads, uh, which leads to the onset of science several centuries later to examine the world. And so we get, you know, we get, uh, uh, gosh, I'll think of his name in a second. Oh, Roger Bacon and Francis Bacon. And, and, and Francis Bacon, I think it's Francis, is saying in around 1580 or something like that, um, I take all knowledge to be my province, and by the way, to put nature on the rack and rest our due, uh, nature is there for us to command and control for our benefit, which is sitting in Genesis. So out, out of Bacon, we then get the, the, the story we know so well of uh, the transition from a cosmology with the, uh, with the earth at the center and everything else revolving around it down to Hades and, and uh, Cervantes, and, and a cosmology in which uh, it's God, the angels, man, down to the worms, and we're at the center of the universe. And all of that is rocked by uh, Copernicus, who then has us rotating around the, the sun, not the sun rotating around us, and, and Galileo and Kepler and Newton. And with, with that birth of modern science about three centuries ago, the, first of all, the the split, between, the split between science and religion that Aquinas thought would not happen became overwhelming. So that, that, that isn't yet the split between art and science, but it will become the split between art and science soon because art is roughly on the side of religion, being human, having values and all of those things. So we have this enormous split between art and, I mean, between science and religion that finds its expression in the deistic God of, of the 18th century, where given Newton, all God could do is set up the initial conditions of the universe, and then the laws of nature take over. God's got nothing more to do. There can be no miracles in Newton's deterministic universe. So we get the deistic uh, God of, as I just said, of the Scottish and French Enlightenment. Uh, now, now, along come the Romantics, and uh, Keats is responding as a poet in the Romantics to the loss of a connection with nature and basically our humanity. And his phrase for it is science with its rule and line. Basically, he means that science is not only godless, it's without spirit. It's, it's Newton's mechanistic universe, and Newton's universe is mechanistic, and the world is a big machine, Descartes and Newton, and even quantum mechanics. So I think that that then uh, ricochets down through the Romantic poets uh, in England, like, like Byron and Keats and Shelley, 
uh, into the 20th century, where uh, an urge to maintain humanity, Shakespeare, who tells us what humanity is, uh, becomes and flowers into literary, artistic uh, culture, and it's divorced from science. And I think that literary culture sees science just as Keats did, as science with its rule and line, a mechanistic, meaningless world that, that's still there. Uh, and it's still there uh, 20 years ago. Stephen Weinberg, the Nobel laureate, said, um, all the explanatory arrows, explanatory arrows point downward um, to some final theory that, that hopefully will be a, uh, an equation you could put on, say, Weinberg's T-shirt, like, like relativity is. And as he says, as Weinberg says, and he means it, the more we find out about the universe, the more meaningless it appears. And that's what he means. That's reductionism. There are no values in it. There's no, there's no action. There's no doing. There's no anything other than raw happenings, which is Newton, which is Einstein, which is Weinberg. So there's no values. There's no, uh, well, there's no agency. There's no whatever. Uh, and of course, that's not right. That's just not true. There are agents. You and I are agents. Rabbits are agents. Uh, it's a book I've written some time ago. Uh, so I, I think that we may be at the point where we can begin to unite the humanities and the arts and the sciences. Uh, maybe. Sorry for all the us. No, <laughs> I'm uh, just thinking for the first time, I, John. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to... It's funny, when I was contemplating this conversation, I kept coming back to this need for me to self-disclose a bit about my own bias and just put it out there because I think my own ignorance really created in me a bit of what I perceive to be or I experience to be contempt for scientists because I'm in that lineage of William Blake and I really enjoy the Blakeian approach. And so you're you're hitting squarely on some of that shadow side of the humanities in that there there is a because it's such a different language, it, it represents, to use a Jungian term, a shadow side. And I think a lot yeah. of, of the humanities pushes against it with, with contempt and judgment, myself included. And so this conversation really does for me represent a, a movement in my own uh, understanding, uh, my, own, my own cosmology, theology, philosophy, so on and so forth, about an opening to my own sense of um, inferiority when I come into relationship with this language that you so elegantly move back and forth from. I mean, when you were writing, when I was reading Reinventing the Sacred, you spent an enormous amount of time really treating these ideas that I've, I've, I've brushed over almost, and you've said a couple of them. Uh, reductionism is one of them. Um, mechanistic or machine mind is you know, one that you were kind of pointing at, and the other is determinism. And I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time um, I realize you've you've written books on these ideas and you you go deep into them. But if we could, could you define for one right there reductionism for those of us that don't really get that deep into the subject? I'll be glad to. But first, can I ask you a question, please? Um, if Keats said science with its rule and line, ruining a loss of humanity in it, you just said a few minutes ago that you feeling yourself a certain kind of contempt for science. What is it, John? Try to say it. What's the contempt about? Yeah, What's no, it's, it a, for? it's a great question. I, I think on one level, it's that that's not been my lane. The other is that 
there, I think it's the split between what is rational and irrational. And I've, I've really kind of pushed myself into that irrational space where we think about things like mysteries and what mysteries or dreams are pointing at, or literature is pointing at, or poetry is pointing yeah. at, and altered mm-hmm. states of consciousness. You know, what, what kind of mysteries are fueling that form to, to, you know, you referenced Genesis earlier, you know, the word, the form around these mysteries, and we've looked to poetry and dreams and altered states. And, and it, I mean, I, I, I can't stand having, I can't stand saying this because I actually almost made the choice to go into neuroscience, but it, it's a little like an economy of mind where you got to pick a lane now. And I feel like I'm part of that cultural movement that chose my lane. And then I simply just spoke the language of, or I learned the language of religion and philosophy, and I, I neglected the, the language of biology, physics, and the like. Well, that helps a lot. I actually think, I, I have been writing about it for a long time, John. Uh, there are real limits to rationalism. Um, and it's, 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 it's sitting in its beginning form in Reinventing the Sacred book. By the way, I named that book Reinventing the Sacred because of a wonderful experience that it's worth telling you, if I may. About 1992, I was at a little conference of four people by the Gihon Foundation, about 30 miles from here. And the Gihon Foundation at that time brought in three to five people every other year to consider the great problems confronting mankind. You know, as if any three or five people could do anything about it. So there was this willing suspension of disbelief, and we all decided to take it seriously. Um, there were two uh, newspaper writers there, Walter Shapiro. I can't remember the name of the woman. She's wonderful. Do you know the name N. Scott Mamaday? No. So Scott is a, uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Kiowa uh, uh, Native American poet. And Scott is around six, seven... 280 pounds bass voice. And I was a you know 52-year-old Jewish fruit fly geneticist, uh, atheist. And we're sitting around the table wondering what we're going to say. And Scott paced, and he said in a voice that I cannot emulate, the most important problem confronting mankind is to reinvent the sacred. My immediate response is, you can't say that. There's nothing sacred. You know, there's a scientific world. Literally 15 seconds later, from nowhere, I knew he was right. And it was life-changing, John. Mm. That moment. That's why I wrote the book, Reinventing the Sacred. And you'll find, a if you have the book, you'll find that I retell the story of my encounter with, with Scott. Scott's right. We do have to reinvent the sacred. Uh, and so I've been doing my bit to try to do that ever since. So here's part of it. Um, in, in Reinventing the Sacred... I start wondering, I have a chapter called Breaking the Galilean Spell, Mm -hmm. in which I basically try to say we cannot write down laws for the becoming of the biosphere, which I I got together with my friends Giuseppe Longo and Al Monteville in 2012, and we published a paper that I think is right and terribly important, if it's right, and I think it is. And who am I to say terribly important, but see what you think. The title of that paper is No Entailing Laws, but Enablement in the Evolution of the Biosphere. So what we claim to show is just that. There's no entailing laws. 
So we can now get at both reductionism and why it may not apply to the biosphere and the evolution of the biosphere and life and economies and people and minds and religiosity as follows. So let's look at let's look at reductionism to get back to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost all of your listeners will know Newton's laws. So here's Newton in about 1670, having avoided the plague, the apple fell on his head, or didn't, and what an amazing human being. He invents differential and integral calculus, um, and he, 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 he taught us how to think as scientists uh, 350 years ago. So here's how you do it. You write down Newton's laws of motion. Uh, there's three laws of motion. I won't repeat them. And there's a universal law of gravitation. Then you have the notion of initial and boundary conditions. So imagine seven billiard balls rolling on a table. The, the relevant features are the positions of the balls and how fast they're going. It's really their momentum, which is mass times velocity. So in Newton's equations, if you... So, the, so now notice the following thing. If I know the shape of the billiard table, which are the boundary conditions, I know all possible positions and momenta of balls rolling on the table. That's called the face space of the system. So it's all possible positions and momenta. And then what you do is you say, Isaac, uh, what's going to happen to the balls? And he says, don't be silly. I gave you these differential equations. Measure the initial positions of the, and momenta of the balls, the boundary positions of the table, because uh, the balls will bounce off the table. That's my third law. Now, integrate my equations to get the future ways the balls with, will roll. And that's called the trajectories of the ball. Okay? So... Let's look at what we did by integrating Newton's equations. We derived the consequences of the laws of motion and the initial and uh, conditions and the boundary conditions for the trajectories of the balls. That's what integration does. That is identical to logical entailment. And you can see it with the Greek syllogism. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is immortal. Okay? So what what had happened is, and Bob Rosen points this out, Robert Rosen in Life Itself, uh, Newton had uh, thrown away all of the Aristotelian causes except efficient cause and mathematized efficient cause, causing something to happen by making the force be a logical derivation, so an entailment. So now we're going to get to reductionism. About 150 years after Newton, we get to Laplace, I guess at the time of Napoleon, and Laplace is the founder of modern reductionism. Uh, he's a great mathematician, and he said, if we knew the positions and the momenta of all the particles in the universe, we could use Newton's laws and predict the entire future of the universe, and we could predict the entire past because Newton's, um, Newton's laws are time-reversible. That's the birth of modern reductionism. Mm-hmm. We could deduce everything. We could integrate Newton's equations, and we could get everything. It would all fall out. So a couple hundred years later, we've got Weinberg saying, there is a theory down there, some final theory. That's his dreams of a final theory. And basically, we can integrate the equations and get what's going to happen. Is that, is that fairly clear? Yes. Okay. Now, we just need to put in some quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics is of the same form as Newton. 
there's a, a Schrodinger's equation, which you know you either know or you know exists. Anyway, it's it's a linear um, differential wave equation. When you integrate it, you get the deterministic evolution, not of a thing, but of a probability distribution, and it's completely deterministic. What messes up the determinism uh, is, is quantum measurement, when you get the spot on the screen. So that's a, a further story. But the explanatory framework is exactly the same as Newton's. Now, in that context, let's jump back to what Giuseppe Longo, Mile Motoville, and I hope we've shown in this article. We're saying there's no laws at all for the evolution of the biosphere. Fundamentally, because we do not know the relevant variables ahead of time. So let hold, hold, I'll give the argument in a moment. What if there's no laws for the evolution of the biosphere? We cannot do what Newton said to do. We can't do science the way he said. We have to do something Newtonian for the historical becoming of biospheres. In, in a deep sense, John, we don't know how to think. Uh, and the, I'll, I'll come back to it in a moment, but there's another very interesting book called Uncertainty by David Lindahl, uh, who talks about the advent of quantum mechanics in the early 20th century, where the physicists had to give up the determinism of Newton for the absolute indeterminism of quantum mechanics, where radioactive decay uh, happens for no reason at all. It just happens. It's indeterministic. And Einstein could never stand that. And that's what that book's about. So that was a crisis in physics. If, if Giuseppe Longomile, Motivilla, and I are right, it may be the case that our result, that there's no law, is as big a crisis as quantum mechanics was. It sounds like bragging, and I don't mean to at all, and I don't know. Um, but if there's no law, now what do we do? That's going to bear on, in a minute, rationality. So let me try to get to this. Um, uh, in the biosphere... Um, let me talk about the functions of parts uh, in the biosphere. So the function of your heart is to pump blood, John, but your heart makes heart sounds and it jiggles water in your pericardial sac. Those are not the functions of your heart. The function of your heart is to pump blood. So the function of your heart is a subset of its causal consequences. I could say this because I've written it down lots of times. Um, I read that. So already, already we cannot reduce biology to physics. Because physics can talk about all the causal consequences. It cannot specify a subset of those causal consequences as some other functions. Okay? So let, let's ask for a moment, what, what if we ask Darwin, what's the function of Kaufman's heart? He'd say it's pump blood. And he'd give a selective account. He'd say, I have a heart because a heart helped keep alive um, organisms in my ancestry, and therefore I have a functioning heart. But he's actually answering something deeper and it takes a moment to think about this. Why do hearts exist at all in the universe? Since the Big Bang, where do hearts come from? Well, we have them, so they've come. So we need a couple more thoughts. And I, I'm sorry this takes a little while, but there's a bunch of things that I hope we've together. So ask yourself, we're, we're, we're going to try to defeat reductionism, not in the sense of defeating it entirely, just to say that it doesn't talk about the evolution of biosphere's in any useful way except that we're based on physics, your heart actually works. So, so think about this. Um, after the Big Bang, at some point we got uh, nuclei, we got atoms, uh, and, then with, uh, the, and then when the stars came along, we got the synthesis of the larger atoms, 
uh, up to wherever we got, about 109 elements. Now ask yourself, has the universe made all possible stable atoms? Well, of course it has. So the universe is what's called ergodic with respect to that. It's made all the possibles. Ergodic means sort of does everything get to happen. Now, ask yourself whether or not the universe has made all possible proteins length 200. So a protein is 20, has 20 kinds of amino acids. So how many possible proteins are there in a, a protein length 200 amino acids? Well, it's 20 times 20 times 20 times 20, <laughs> 200 times. And 20 to the 200 is 10 to the 270th. So now let's ask, that's a big number. Um, now let's ask whether or not the universe could have done it in the lifetime of the universe. The answer is going to be overwhelmingly no, and it means something physical that's going to bear on arts and sciences. Um, so the age of the universe is about 14 billion years, which is something like 10 to the, I've done these calculations before, 10 to the 17th. The fastest time scale in the universe is the Planck time scale, which is 10 to the minus 43rd seconds, and there's about 10 to the 80th particles in the universe. So if you imagine that 10 to the 80th particles in the universe were doing nothing at each Planck time moment but making proteins like 200, um, here's how long it would take to make all possible proteins like 200. It'd be the age of the universe times 10 to the 37th power. So we are making an incredibly tiny fraction of all possible proteins like 200. That means the universe is vastly non-ergodic, non-repeating, at levels of complexity above atoms. We will not make all possible complex molecules, will not make all possible mountains, we will not make all possible organs or organ systems or organisms or whatever. There's an infinite sink in complexity going up, and people really haven't thought about this very much. So now, now hold that, and then they will give So let me call that the non-ergodic universe. John, my new book's just come out. It's called... Uh, a World Beyond Physics, uh, The Emergence and Evolution of Life, and I'll just tell you what it is. It's Oxford University Press, and it came out May 1. And there's a nice review in Nature, May 2, uh, by a woman named Sarah Walker. She's a physicist. Anyway, so now if you think about this, let's come back to the question, why in the world do hearts exist in the universe? Most complex things won't. So it's amazing that hearts exist, and they only exist... Hearts only exist in the universe because they help the the propagation of, of organisms that have heart to stay alive and make more organisms. That's why there are hearts in the universe. That means something physical. The fact that hearts kept, keep you alive and organisms with hearts alive means that they really have a function. The function of a part is the subset of its causal consequences that, that, that helps the organism stay alive and propagate. And that's the only reason there are hearts in the universe, or hearing, or flight, or hair, um, or uh, little beasts crawling around on surfaces. This is not in physics at all. It doesn't go against the laws of physics. So now let's go on a couple of steps further. The reason we can have no laws for the evolution of the biosphere is that things with functions uh, are part of the phase space of biological evolution. Once hearts come to exist, uh, the fact that, that they're pumping blood is part of what keeps the biosphere propagating. So now let's ask if we can say ahead of time what these functions are going to be. And I, I can either tell you the reason why, or just, just roughly, of course you can't. 
Nobody two billion years ago, no, no intelligence two billion years ago could have said giraffe. I mean, all that was around were some single cell organisms, the bacteria and archaea, who didn't even have multicell organisms. So if I can give you one more piece, we'll see this, but here's where we're going. I'm going to tell you in a minute that we cannot pre-state. It's not a matter of predicting. We can't even say ahead of time what new functions are going to arise in the biosphere. Since we can't say the new functions are going to arise, we cannot write down the ever-changing phase space of biological evolution. Therefore, we cannot write down any laws at all for the becoming of the biosphere. We can't. We can't. We're beyond Newton. So, so here's the core simple argument I am running on, but I've thought about it a lot, John. So let me play a game, let me play a game with you, and here it is. I'm going to hand you a screwdriver. You're in Houston. So, John, I want you to tell me all possible uses of a screwdriver in Houston. So I'm looking. Tell me some uses. Sure. So I can use it as a as its function. I can screw screws. I can unscrew screws. I can um, use it as a dart. I can uh, open a letter with it. I can uh, play spin the bottle with it. I can uh, see if I thought of that one. into the grass. <laughs> You go. Well, uh, okay, let me just say because I've done it. Okay, you feel yourself on a roll now. Yeah. So, uh, can you wedge a door closed? Yeah. Can you wedge the door open? Yeah. Can you scrape putty off the window? Yeah. Can you use this as an objet d'art? Yeah. Can you tie it to a stick and spear a fish? Yeah. Can you rent the spear out and take five percent of the catch? Yes. My favorite is lean it against the wall, um, put a piece of plywood on it, and put a wet painting underneath it to keep the rain off. That's a really neat use of a screwdriver, right? So having said a bunch of uses of the screwdriver, I'm now going to ask a question. Do you think the number of uses of a screwdriver is infinite? Or is it some finite number like seven? Or is it indefinite? Indefinite. Everybody agrees. It's indefinite. A very interesting word. Before we get lost on what that might mean, just pause. Suppose we use a metaphor. You know, my only metaphor is Juliet is like the sun. The number of meanings of a metaphor is indefinite, too, before we get frightened of indefinite. Okay? So, so the number of uses is indefinite. Now, I need to tell you a little uh, a thing about a bit of mathematics. Uh, there are what are called nominal scales, just the names of things, like table and rock and waterfall and Joe. There's... Uh, ordering relationships like x is greater than y and y is greater than z, then x is greater than z. Then there's interval scales like a thermometer, but zero doesn't mean anything. Then there's ratio scales like a meter, so good two meters is twice one meter. Well, neat. What kind of ordering, well, what, what kind of relationship um, is the first? It's just called a nominal scale. So uses of screwdrivers are obviously just a nominal scale, just a bunch of uses, right? Agreed? But there's no ordering relationship among them. One isn't bigger than the other or before the other or top of the other. There's no transitive relationship among them. And now here's my claim that, that, that Giuseppe Longo and I and, and Miles make, and I make, it, I make it in my new book, and I've made it now for a while. Um, there's no algorithm. An algorithm is a definite rule-following procedure. There is no algorithm that can list all the uses of screwdrivers. 
or list the next use of a screwdriver. You cannot deduce the next use of a screwdriver. You jury rig, but you, you don't list it. When you jury rig it, you don't know ahead of time what you're going to do. So this now means that in the evolution of the biosphere, new uses or new functions come up all the time. Uh, so I'll give you my favorite example. God, I'm lecturing, but I have written about it, so I guess I can do it. Um, there's an organ called a swim bladder. The swim bladder has water and air in the same thing, and fish have them. The ratio of air and water tunes neutral buoyancy in the water column. So paleontologists think that swim bladders came out of fish with lungs. Some water got into some lungs of some lungfish. Then they evolved into swim bladders. So once they're swim bladders, a new function has come to exist in the biosphere that changes the evolution of the biosphere, but you could not pre-state it. It's a new use to the screwdriver. So there's just millions of, well, I don't know, there's an awful lot of examples. Hearing's an example, or flight feathers. are. They're all over the place. That means that you cannot pre-state the ever-changing phase space of biological evolution, which includes all these functions. Then you can't write down any equations among the variables because you don't know what the variables are. So you can't integrate the equations. So there's just no laws of motion for the biosphere. Now, this is due to Giuseppe and me and, and my kind of separately than we all came together. And it's in this paper, again, no entailing laws but evolution, and, but, uh, but, but uh, no entailing laws but enablement and the evolution of the biosphere. And it's in my last book. So that means something big. There aren't any laws. But that also means something about reason, which, what, which is what you're struggling with. If you cannot, let me, let me define the adjacent possible. It's what can happen next. So, so uh, the adjacent possible you know, is whatever can arise next out of what's actual now. You cannot pre-state what's in the adjacent possible. We cannot pre-state, for example, what, what, will our, what will our global economy look like in 100 years? We have, we have very little idea what it'll look like in 100 years. Just imagine it was 300 years ago. Do you think you could have said, gee, in 300 years we could sell a used bike on eBay on the web? Well, of course not. Okay. That means something fundamental that I've been struggling with for a long time, John, and it's what you just said. Reason is not a sufficient guide for living your life. You cannot reason about things that you can't even imagine. You just can't reason about them. So how are you going to reason? So three centuries ago, how could you reason about what a good price it would be to set on your bicycle to sell on eBay uh, on the web? You can't optimize, you know, your welfare or your utility function because you don't even know that bicycles or the web's going to. You might have known bikes. You didn't know bikes three, three centuries ago. You can't reason about it. If we don't know what's in the adjacent possible, reason is no guide. So we need something else. We live doing this. Probably we're using intuition and passion and a bunch of other things. It's not logical deduction. So as Kierkegaard said, we live our lives forward anyway so 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 it's reason and it's reason and something some mixture of reason intuition whatever that we live our lives with but this is also the end of laplace's and weinberg's reductionism because the biosphere is part of the universe but if there's no laws for the evolution of the biosphere assuming that's correct um then reduction the dream that there's a final theory that will allow us to deduce everything is false It'll allow you to do a lot of things. Newton gets you, you know, to to Saturn with rockets, 
but it's not going to give you uh, the capacity to deduce the Republican Party or Mr. Trump, uh, which I could say things about that probably we share, except lying Trump does seem like a, a good name for him. Uh, you can't deduce it from three billion years ago. You just can't. That means reductionism in its strong sense just fails, at least for the evolution of life. But that's a lot. So, God, that was a lot of look <laughs> I'm, I can't wait to listen back to that because it was so many things I needed to hear. The, my thought, though, is, and maybe this is an issue with kind of definition of terms, when you say laws, the first thing I think of is this law of opposition because there does seem to be a dual framework that exists in a in a human being's experience. I mean, rational and irrational, reductionism versus, you know, mystery. Uh, and so I, because, you know, you talk about the screwdriver and there is a component to the screwdriver, which is the screw. And while in, in its creation, it's, it's kind of created with that in mind, but then what takes over is a lot of creativity to use that object in different ways. And I wonder what you can say about that, you know, I'll use the term law, but of opposition, because there, something about evolution and, and creativity in and of itself is that you're in relationship with some perceived other, even if it's an irrational inner other, that's this kind of intuition. John, help me understand the. What do you mean by a law of opposition? I, I don't know. What you, I, 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 what I don't know that I know what I mean either. All, all that, what I, what I think I mean is that it's some kind of a universal phenomena that is is involved in the act of creativity. You know, I, I am engaging with some other in in in. You know, even if, so, we talk about the heart, or we talk about the nervous system. You know that you've got the excitatory and inhibitory, a systolic, diastolic pre movements in the heart, in and out, and that seems to be something universal. I mean, we're we're essentially always in relationship with what is known, or the known is always in relationship with what is unknown, and discovering, and then as soon as it discovers, it plants its flag, but it's in relationship to another unknown now. Well, that, that I can talk about. Yeah. Well, what okay. do you mean by? Let's come back to that in a minute. You you just said in your words what I mean by the adjacent possible. The adjacent possible is what can happen next. Uh -huh. It's the it's that's it's the unknown. The actual that which exists now is known. Say the, the goods and services in the economy now is the actual economy. The goods and services that'll come to exist in the next thirty years are in the adjacent possible. Right. So you know once there's iPhones. Uh, apps on iPhones can come into existence, but they couldn't come into existence before there were iPhones. Uh, I, we're saying, th in that part, I think we're saying the same thing. Yes. Or knowledge expands into an unknown adjacent possible often. Yes. But what do you mean by opposition? Uh, tension. Um, uh, Jung called it the tension of opposites. You know, that, that there's something about at least our human experience that creates an opposite. And that when I think I immediately think about development, you know, my daughter being two and a half years old and she is very into mine and no, she, you know, she's differentiating herself from her environment. She's a standard, she's a standard two, two year old. That's right. You know, all you need to know, Dave, you ever heard this, John? It's perfectly appropriate if you're a dad with a two year old. All you need to know if you're a two year old are two words. 
hot and no. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <Is> that <correct? laughs> yeah. Which is which is to say, like, I don't like it, or that hurts, you know, uh, to move away yeah. from something. And that's kind of what I'm getting yeah. at. With we're in well, our. She's integrating herself right now. Yes. And the way is that she talking? Yet? Is oh, she yeah. talking yet? Yes. Isn't that fun? It's great. It's great. But but that that's it. I mean, the in order to create her in individuated self to begin that process of differentiation that's exactly what has to happen there's a tension or a an opposition between who i am and who the world is you know, or, or how, how to distinguish myself from you and that fact seems to be something that continues to show up even if we say classical newtonian physics into quantum mechanics or in philosophy, the I-thou relationship, or, or ought and is. You know, there's there there are always these. I, I can't say always. What I end up seeing a lot, certainly through this investigation, is that duality. And with that said, I need to hang my hat a little bit on what um, Jeff Kripal introduced me to the term dual aspect monist, and that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me when we think about our experience of reality. I almost know what dual aspect monist is. Uh, I too did philosophy. Uh, so tell me, tell me your understanding, which is probably better than mine, of dual aspect monism. Sure, it's, it's talking about different, different epistemic realities with one ontological way of being. There's that that's there are different ways of coming to know the same kind of reality. And you actually got at it when you were, I was really excited to, to, to know that we could jump into this part of the conversation. You referenced Jung's typology. And, and so sure. we're, we're, we're looking at rational and irrational functions and the rational functions being sent, uh, excuse me, thinking and feeling and the irrational functions being sensing and intuition, which is what we're kind of swimming around in right now. And there uh -huh. is even in that, right? I mean, he got that extroversion, introversion from thinking about yeah. the heart. So, all... John, can I, take, can I take you back for a moment? Sure. Let me tell you what I think dual aspect monism is. Um, so let's back to Descartes. Uh, Descartes tells us res cogitan and res extensa. And he immediately, then, then from Descartes, we get, you know, we get, the Cartesian coordinate system, then we get Newton, and then we get the Newtonian worldview. Mm -hmm. And Descartes is asked pretty soon, you know, even by, I guess, some some um, princes in Sweden, so how does race cogitan is mind? And then, and, and Descartes is a substance dualist, substance dualism. There's two substances. There's 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 mind stuff that humans have, and everything else is raised extensions. The me mechanical world, right? And and then Newton wins out with with uh, raised extension. It's a Newtonian world. And the problem from this from from Descartes on is so how does mind act on matter? Right. That's the right. That's the problem with with uh, De with uh, Cartesian dualism. Correct. Right. So. Um, I've actually thought about this and written about this too. I guess it's because I'm almost 80. But this is going to lead to, I think, dual aspect, uh, dual aspect monism. So the problem is the following: uh, if you take classical physics, then the current state of the brain is entirely sufficient 
for the next state of the brain is just classical physics, like the billiard balls. Just like the billiard balls, the current state of the brain is causally sufficient for the next state of the brain. Then there's nothing for mind to do and no way for mind to do it. It's asking your mind to make the billiard balls move differently. So, so Newton, Newton, Descartes leads to the view that either we have no minds at all, we're zombies, or we might have mind, but it can't act on the world. It's merely epiphenomenal. So we've been stuck with that for 350 years. And if that were right, then what was the selective advantage for mind? It can't affect the world. It's just nuts. And the problem is classical physics. So you can't get out of this problem with classical physics. And I've written about it, and other people have too. I think, it, I think you can get out of the problem with quantum mechanics included. And why not? Quantum mechanics is real. Given that, I think dual aspect monism means something. Like there's only one stuff, but it's got two aspects. Yes. Somehow one mind and somehow one other stuff. I think that's what dual aspect monism is. Does that sound right? Yeah, it brings together the two. It's that it's that yin yang. I mean, that's the I think the Taoist image is really getting at that from a. That's what we're talking about. You know, it's it's one one symbol, two different aspects to it, most definitely. But, and that se there seems to be something life giving, life generating about that reality. Uh, just and so I that's what I mean when I say tension or opposition, and is what the the Taoists are getting at, you know, in, in the, they're in opposition and the symbol is getting at that by showing the little bit of the one stuff in the other stuff and vice versa. You mean yin, yin yang? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. yes. Neat. Can, can I, can I continue the lecture for a moment? I actually think I know a possible answer to the problem. Please. And I, I, I've, been, I've been writing about it for some years. I just published it. Uh, I wrote it a number of years ago. It's called Mind Body Quantum Mechanics, and it just came out about two months ago. Uh, it might be right. I think it answers Descartes. Uh, it might not be right, but at least it's maybe an answer to Descartes 50 years later. So here's the problem. Let's come back at it afterwards and see if we think this is dual aspect monism. Um, Descartes got a dualism of substances, mind stuff and body stuff. The problem we've got is that we want mind to somehow act on matter, but if it's classical physics, there's no way mind can do it. So the, the problem is sticking with classical physics. Well, why stick with classical physics? Quantum mechanics is the best theory we've got, except for general relativity. In quantum mechanics, um, something like a quantum mind can have a-causal consequences for the meat of the brain. But it's a-causal, so it's not causal. Our, our problem with, with Newton and Descartes is that we want, we want Descartes' mind stuff to act causally mm -hmm. on the meat of the brain. And it can't act causally. We've already got all the causes in the classical physics part without mind. So we're stuck. We've been stuck for 350 years. In quantum mechanics, there are well-known and a less well-known ways that, an a, that a, a quantum mind could act on the meat of the brain. One is just quantum measurement. So, so when you shine the light through the two slits uh, and the two slit experiment, you really get a spot on the film emulsion. That's an actual thing. It's, 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 uh, it's a spot on the screen. 
Mm-hmm. In quantum mechanics, nobody knows what's waving in the Schrodinger wave equation. My own hypothesis is that it's probabilities that are waving. Uh, and my friends and I have proposed a, a new dualism that's a non-substance dualism that we call raised potentia and raised extensia. Uh, and so quantum world on that view is, is just possible. And we published a paper on it. Heisenberg had the same idea in 1958. So we're not new. We're just and there's a paper called Taking Heisenberg's Potential Seriously that's online and published that discusses this. It doesn't talk about the mind-body part of it. Now, if that's right, as far as anybody knows, there is no mechanism whatsoever for measurement to happen. It just happens. But it does happen. Uh, one of the arguments for that is, is an article called The Strong Free Will Theorem by Conway and Cochin that concludes that there's no mechanism for measurement. Namely, it's a-causal. Uh, we get to it, too, from raised potentia and raised extensia. On that view, the X is possible of raised potentia does not logically entail the X is actual of raised extensia. Therefore, there's no mechanism for measurement. And then there's another thing we call the poised round that we have a patent on that makes use of the, of the fact of, of quantum decoherence and recoherence to, to, to suggest that uh, a quantum mind by decoherence to classicality for all practical purposes, it's called FAB, could have a causally have consequences for the meat of the brain, then recohere and decohere and recohere over and over again. Uh, it looks like this poised realm is real. I even named my boat the poised realm because I thought it was, because uh, I liked it. So that allows a quantum, a quantum poised realm classical system. It allows a quantum mind to have repeatedly a causal consequences for the meat of the brain. So that's not stupid, and it does provide an answer for Descartes 350 years later. So I don't know that it's right, John, but it, it might be right. It's, I think it's testable. Um, I think it may mean that there's new ways of making computing systems, and that we are such. I think that we may well be part quantum, part, part poised realm, and, and part classical. And so my friends and I have a patent on it that'll never be worth any money whatsoever. <laughs> About it. All, all things yeah. that matter are like that, right? Yeah. Well, we might. I don't know. We're just filing another patent. Um, Stu, I got so, a question. Let me uh, one real yeah. quickly because I want to slow down for a sec because we hear this all the time, and I just want to use this opportunity to have somebody explain it to me. We hear people talking about quantum mind. What do you yeah. mean when you say that? Uh, I'm talking about quantum mind right now. Okay, so I should be very careful. I think I can give a coherent discussion. Uh, if your listeners want to look up or Google mind, body, and quantum mechanics, you can see my try. I mean, lots of people are thinking about the mind body problem, I and mean, forever mm-hmm. we've been thinking about the mind body problem, especially since Descartes. So take mine with a big grain of salt. I don't know, but what I don't have any idea of is. Is experiential terms like how come we can you know smell roses and see blue? That's there's no explanation at all in anything that that I know anybody said for what are called qualia. You know why are there qualia? Why is there the awareness of blue? And nobody knows. Nobody even has any decent ideas. So some philosopher said, you know, we don't have any idea what it would be like to have an idea of what qualia are. There are tries at it. Roger Penrose, uh, in what's called Objective Reduction and the Shadows of the Mind, uh, and uh, uh, um, 
uh, something about the emperor. I can't remember. Penrose has written about it a lot. I've written about it some. David Chalmers, in a mm -hmm. famous book, wrote about it in 1996. It's a superb book where he talks about the hard problem of a conscience. This is precisely what our qualia. So in some desperation, I think Chalmers and I, maybe Penrose, I don't know who else, are getting to the kind of desperate view that qualia are just part of the universe. That doesn't explain them. It doesn't explain, there's no explanation for mass. I don't think it's an explanation at all. It's a desperate move. But, you know, it's conceivable. I know what qualia are because I have them, and so do you. But <laughs> we're no better off than people were when, when St. Gregory thought about the nature of time in the year 300 AD. Well, so our, our problem is subjectivity. Yeah, it's qualia. Yes. The, the little story I gave you is one possible way that you could have a system consistent with known physics by which a quantum mind could act on the meat of the brain. That answers Descartes if it's right. It certainly is an answer to Descartes, which is which is useful 350 years later. And it might even be right, but that doesn't tell us what qualia are. Well, and, and on this uh, coherence, decoherence, you used in your book an image of waves. You dropped two pe pebbles in a, in a water and waves, the way they come together. Could you explain that a bit? Yeah, that's not me. That's just trying to explain quantum mechanics. Uh, sure, I can explain it because I, I sort of understand it. So the puzzle, Feynman says that this two-slit experiment already gives you uh, the central puzzle of quantum mechanics. So it took me a while, but I think I understand it. You know, physicists certainly understand it. I'm not a physicist. So here's the experiment. Um, you have a... Um, uh, a partition, like a thin piece of wood, and you cut two little slits in it close together. And you cover the back of one slit with a little piece of tin, and you shine a flashlight at the slit, the, the, that's the two slits, but there's only one open now. And behind the screen, behind the little piece, the piece of wood, the screen of wood, you have an old-fashioned film emulsion. That's how it was done a long time ago. Now you have a, a CCD, but it doesn't matter. You have a film emulsion. Well, what you get is a bright spot on the film emulsion. When you develop the film, you get a bright spot. So think for a moment of shooting, and this is Feynman's way of explaining it, think for a moment of shooting little key bullets, and the bullets just go through the slit, and they, they hit the screen on the far side, and you get exactly what expect, you'd expect. You get a, this is Feynman. You get a pile of bullets with the Gaussian distribution, and that's just what you get when one slit is open. You get a pile of photons or little spots on the on the on the uh, silver emulsion, the silver halide things, uh, and it's Gaussian and it's just, it's just a bright spot. Now change which slit is open, and you get a bright spot behind the other slit. Then says Feynman, now open both slits. This is Feynman. Um, what do you? It's not Feynman. It's Feynman describing it. What do you get? Between the two slits, you get alternating light and dark patterns, maybe five or six of them between the projection of the two slits. And Feynman now hits you with this. You cannot explain that by imagining that light is little bullets or that what's happening are little bullets. How would you get this light, dark, light, dark, light, dark pattern at the far end? That's, that's the puzzle. That's the puzzle of quantum mechanics right there. So we now have the, the Schrodinger wave equation uh, it, it propagates wave like water waves, except they're waves of nobody knows what. So here's the analogy that helps understand it. Uh, imagine a seawall with two uh, gaps in it. 
uh, maybe a foot across. And water waves are propagating towards the seawall and towards the beach. On the beach side of the seawall, the waves that come through the left slit and the right slit, the left gap, each one creates semicircular waves that propagate towards the beach. You don't have to, you just remember it. That's of course what happens. So I got these two slots in the seawall and I've got two semicircular waves that are, are, are propagating towards the beach. Now make it a wave train of, of waves that are coming towards the seawall and you get a bunch of concentric cir half circles from the left slit and from the right slit. Now let them hit the beach. Now walk along the beach. There's some points as you walk along the beach where the crest of one wave from the left slit arrives at the same point as the crest uh, from the right slit, so you get a higher crest. There's some other points where the trough of one wave arrives exactly where the trough of another wave comes, so you get a deeper trough. In between them, there are some plates where the crest of one wave hits where the trough of another wave comes, and they cancel out, There's right? Yes. So in quantum mechanics, that says where you've got high peaks and low troughs, you get bright spots, and where they cancel out, you get dark spots. Got it? Got it. That explains the interference pattern. So a wave equation explains the interference pattern. You need one more thing. you got to get a spot, and that needs uh, quantum measurement. But, but Feynman's point is, and he was you know, superb in, 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 uh, as a quantum mechanician guy, uh, he invented uh, some overall possible histories, interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is beautiful. Um, you can't explain that classically at all. So the mystery of quantum mechanics is in this in this in this pattern. It, it, it's called an interference pattern, and interference means that uh, getting an interference between the the waves that went through the left slit and right slit. So that's the answer. But I can't remember what you were asking me. I think you were asking me about uh, about the wave story, the water waves. Uh, oh, it's co coherence and decoherence in the pebbles in the water. And the other little... Well, that, this is not coherence and decoherence. This is an interference pattern. Decoherence and coherence is a different matter that I understand modestly well. Uh, my, my friend, Wojtek uh, Zurich, 40 miles from me, is an expert on it. He's up at Los Alamos. But I can tell you roughly what decoherence is, if, sure. you, if you'd like to. Please. Okay. So... Um, If you take a closed quantum system, I think I, I'm not a physicist, so we've got to be careful. But right. your your listeners could just look up decoherence. Wojtek um, Zurich has written on it. Z U R E K. He's a close friend, and he helped develop the field. So um, here's here's a way of thinking about it. When a water wave when water waves are propagating uh, towards the beach. If you were standing at one point underwater, as you watch the water coming over you, you could measure you could measure simultaneously the height of the wave, up or down. Let's call that the amplitude. And you could measure whether the wave is going up or down as it passes over you. You could say, is the water going up or is it going down, right? And it's going up and down and up and down and up and down. So it, if, if you're looking at it from one point, it's just oscillating up and down. So you could talk about the phase of the wave up uh, north, north, northwest, west, south, and around. You just a phase angle would tell you the rotation, right? So at every point, you could talk about the amplitude and the phase. 
for a waterway, right? Yes. Same thing is true in quantum mechanics. You could talk about the amplitude and the phase. You happen to do it mathematically in the complex plane, which has got imaginary values on one axis and real values on another axis. But it's just a circle in this complex plane. It's just complex numbers, which I know a little bit about. Anyway, it's, it's going round and round. So to get an interference pattern, see how I can explain this. See if I remember it. Uh, this, imagine a little, a little circle going around a hoop. Uh, the, as it goes around the hoop, you could, that's, you're measuring the phase because you go around the circle. And, and that's, that's, called, that's called action. There's a, an action variable in quantum mechanics. It's keeping track of, at any point in space and time, where, where the wave is going around its circle. So that's that, that, that there's a, a variable in quantum mechanics. In order to get an interference pattern everywhere in space and time, you know, in the vicinity of the, of the film emulsion, yeah, the the action, this, this phase information has to exist, amplitude and um, and phase. What's happening in decoherence? It happens in an open quantum system that can interact with the rest of the quantum universe. Um, so, for example, it's not a closed box of mirrors with radiation inside of it, but it, it, the box can leak outward. The phase information, it, this is how I understand it, I'm, again, I'm not a physicist, is just acausally lost to the outer universe. So this, this phase information goes away. But that means that you can't get an interference pattern. Because when the phase information goes away, it would be like it would be like trying to get an interference pattern with water waves. When classically it's nuts, but just picture that it, it, as phase information is lost in the water wave analogy, the height of the wave would just be random all over the place. It's getting randomized the height, so you wouldn't get an interference pattern. You destroy. You can try to see that classically. That's my best understanding of decoherence. Uh, and it's an established thing. There's no doubt about coherence. It really works. In the presence of decoherence, you get new physics. Like, for example, radioactive decay is no longer half-life. It's something else. Um, I can't remember what it is. So that was known. Uh, and it, what, what happened to me is I, found, I might have found out of it from, from Zurich. And I thought, isn't that neat? You can approach the classical world infinitely closely. It's not clear that you can get there. You, you can get there for all practical purposes, is the, is the phrase. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? Um, gee, a quantum mind can have a causal consequences for the meat of the brain, and that would answer Descartes. And I thought, but then I thought, that's no good if it only happens once. So, so John Holcloth, as a, you know, a nice Jewish fruit fly genetist, I just invented recoherence as a sort of in desperation. I don't know, in about 2000, I said, let it recohere. And it's, it turns out, it turns out I, uh, I had invented out uh, of whole cloth something that was perfectly well known, but not very well known. It is possible to take a decohering system and make it recohere. There's a, a, a theorem due to Peter Shore uh, that I think I quote in the paper that I said to you, Mind, Body, and Quantum Mechanics, that proves that if you eject quotes information into a decohering quantum variable, variable you can make it recohere again. Okay. So now just jump. Uh, I've got a system that could decohere and recohere, decohere and recohere. So 
a, a quantum mind, so call this the poised realm, there's a bit more to it than that, can act repeatedly and have, re well, doesn't act, it can have repeatable consequences for the meat of the brain. So now there's a potential answer for Descartes. My goodness, I lecture, don't I? But I'm a professor. <laughs> what do you want? No, it's, it's perfect. That's what we're doing today. And as I'm I'm listening to this, I'm looking over. I got your book, A World Beyond Physics, and I I didn't have I, I did skim it. I didn't have time to get into it because I was really swimming through reinventing the sacred. And and again, what it does is you you've taken physics. I mean, you keep saying you're not a physicist. You have a wonderful handle on it from my perspective. But it 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 comes from at least my understanding of your developmental trajectory is that it is you're looking at it from a philosopher's viewpoint. Hence the reason why I think religion and philosophy are so important in your work. How does that language that you have on philosophy influence your understanding of physics and your ability to push beyond physics into something else to use terms like the biosphere and talk about evolution? Gosh, well, I trained in philosophy. I, mean, I was, To confess my youth, I was going to be a playwright, and it turned out I was crummy, although I've written two plays in the last couple of years, and they're crummy. Uh, then, I went into, uh, then I went into medicine and uh, delivered my daughter, and then I went into theoretical biology. So I think I've carried along a kind of a philosophy thing ever since I was you know, a kid. And I've been interested in the philosophy of mind you know, since my 20s. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you have a religious background? Did you grow up religious at all? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm Jewish. I've, I've never, I, 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 I actually gave up believing in God. In a, in a, I remember the moment, and it's perfectly sweet. I was three years old, and it was Christmas Eve, and here I am Jewish, and I went out to see if Santa Claus had come down the chimney. And I saw my mommy and my daddy in the living room, and they were wrapping presents. And so I said, Santa Claus is imaginary. And John, in the same moment, I said, and so is God. I mean, I remember the moment. It was really weird. So I gave up on God at age three. I'm not so sure now. I've written a, an article cause, called something like Cosmic Mind that's actually published. I think if you're wild enough and you're thinking about quantum mechanics, you can get to the possibility of a disembodied cosmic mind. I don't believe it, but I don't think it's impossible. Cosmic mind, meaning, the, is this the idea that we're in the mind of God? I don't know. <laughs> it's, not so far, it's not so far from Penrose. In objective reduction, Penrose is saying, um, here's how quantum, see, nobody knows how quantum measurement happens. So Penrose's brilliant man is saying, uh, uh, basically saying that it's due to some, the quantum gravity, wherever quantum gravity is. So nobody knows what quantum gravity is. But he's saying that roughly every that, that when some energy potential is exceeded, there's a, a, a bing. <laughs> Stuart Hameroff calls it bing. So Stuart Hameroff, for somebody your your listener should know, Stuart and, and Penrose have been publishing for years, and that when this happens, quantum measurement happens, and when mm. quantum measurement happens, a little burst of consciousness and qualia happen. So Penrose wants to tie consciousness to quantum measurement and a bit of qualia, and for different reasons, I want to tie consciousness to quantum measurement and a little burst of qualia, but nobody knows what qualia are. So 
I get the same place that Penrose does, except that he's a superb physicist and I'm an amateur. You know, still might be right. This reminds me of the the quote from Blake, I see through the eye, not with it. You're you're getting at the the measurement component, which is again. Let me let me try to put it into my words, and you fix whatever I'm messing up, which is going to be a lot, I imagine. I my understanding of the observer, you know, measurement or observer is that in that field of probability, in order for um, with for that wave to be acted upon, it has to be measured, observed, seen by the eye, and that turns it into a, a point. Yeah, so- that's one interpretation of it's a doubted interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, and and the guy I think the guy who did it is Eugene Wigner, um, who proposes that conscious observation, maybe by a human, is necessary for reduction. You know for for the spot to emerge. Most physicists don't like that at all because, you know, what was happening before there was any human beings, did quantum measurement not happen? Or before there's any, you know, it's a, people don't like it. Right. Uh, and I don't like it either if, you know, if you imagine only human consciousness can cause, you know, is associated with reduction. It's called Wigner's friend. Mm-hmm. You, you can look it up online. Um, See if I can. I, I can almost repeat the argument. Uh, it's 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 related to Schrodinger's cat. You know Schrodinger's cat. Yes. Yeah. It's so. It's half alive and half dead, right? It's simultaneously alive and dead. Right, and as the Zen uh, Zen practitioners say, the if it is not paradox, it's, it's not true. <laughs> Good. So, uh, you want to pause over that one for a little bit? Sure. Simultaneously alive and dead. That's a quantum superposition, and it's why it's why quantum it's why we don't know what quantum mechanics is about because it can't be it can't be true that the cat is simultaneously alive and dead, and that's the puzzle of of, of Schrodinger's cat. Here's why we're stuck, and and this is in the paper that that uh, Michael Epperson and and Ruth Castor and I wrote. Uh, the paper is. Taking uh, taking Heisenberg's potential seriously, suppose so. Here's here it is. Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. So I say that the cat is on the mat, or it's not on the mat. There's nothing in between. That's Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. Therefore, the statement the cat is on the mat and simultaneously not on the mat is a contradiction, and that's why we can't understand what we could possibly mean when we say the cat's simultaneously alive and dead. So here's. I think the solution, and C.S. Peirce, a philosopher around 1900, said it. He said, you know, actuals obey the law of the excluded middle. Possibles don't. So let's try the following. The cat is possibly alive, and simultaneously it's possibly dead. That's not a contradiction. Agreed? Yes. So the step I took, and that Heisenberg, however Heisenberg got to it in 1958, and... uh, a guy named Abner Shimene was doing this in around 1995, a very good philosopher physicist, and Ruth Kastner and Mike, uh, Mike Epperson, and we all, we all sort of did it, um, is following. So, so my term for it is, there is a world of possibles, ray potentia, and a world of actuals, ray's extentia, where possibles do not obey the law of the excluded middle, and actuals do, and so, 
So we've put forward, I think, a new interpretation of quantum mechanics, and I think there's a reasonable chance that it's right. It's not due to me alone. It's everybody I've mentioned. On this view, measurement converts possible to actuals. So, so, okay, just possible becoming actual. Thank you. That's really helpful. So, there's a remaining marvelous mystery. Do you, do you know about non-locality? You know, enough to fumble around in it. But please, if you can uh, speak to it, I'd love it. I sort of can. Uh, so uh, here's quantum mechanics. And Einstein is utterly peeved at quantum mechanics. He doesn't want to give up determinism. So in 1933 or 1935, Einstein was at the Institute for Advanced Studies and had two young assistants, Podolsky and Rosen, and they came up with a thought experiment that blew everybody away. Bohr couldn't stand it. So they said, look, quantum mechanics means the following. If I've got um, two particles that were called entangled, entangled means something technical that I sort of understand, and they are somehow spin one, whatever spin means, I sort of understand, then, then um, the couple things are, 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 spin, are spin one. Then, but they're now separated millions of miles apart. They were together, but they've flown apart. Then quantum mechanics says if you measure the first one and it's found to be up instantaneously, with no time elapsing, the other one's down. Even though they're a million miles apart and light cannot get there instantaneously, it can't get there, you know, until it propagates whatever velocity it does. So quantum mechanics implies that. And Einstein said, this is spooky action at a distance. Quantum mechanics has to be incomplete. So nobody paid much attention to it. Schrodinger in 1950, that's for 35. Schrodinger comes up. No, Heisenberg, I'm sorry, it's Heisenberg's uncertainty. It's Heisenberg's uh, potential, not Schrodinger. In 58, Heisenberg says, there's something weird about the quantum state. It's, it's not an actual, somehow it's potential. But he does not use that idea, which is the same one I'm telling you now, which uh, we came up with. I came up with it independently of Heisenberg. It doesn't matter. Um, he didn't take, uh, take non-locality seriously because there's no evidence for it experimentally. Well, Einstein's wrong. The experiments have been done uh, starting about 1990 by Alan Aspect. I don't know why he never got the Nobel Prize for it. They've done the experiment, and Einstein's wrong. Non-locality is real. They've done it, I think, to 190 kilometers, something like that. You can't. So how do you explain that? So people are going nuts, John. They're trying to imagine faster than the speed of light communication. Well, it doesn't exist. They're tacky on to go faster than the speed of light. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so nobody knows how to explain non-locality. And I, I, so with, with Ruth Kastner and, and, and Mike Epperson, and probably with Abner Shimane and others in the late 90s, uh, I think, and, and uh, so Ruth and I and Mike think that race potential, race extension, does explain non-locality really easily. So, so here it is. Um, your, your, uh, your microphone is right in front of you. Where is the possibility that you might fall on your head in the next hour? It doesn't make any sense to say that it's located under the refrigerator. Just sounds stupid, right? So let's try two ideas. Uh, one idea is that, uh, is that uh, 
possibilities aren't even located in space-time. That's we'd have to go beyond space-time, but that's okay. People are trying it, so don't try to imagine where it is. And the other is possibilities are located simultaneously everywhere in space. So they're, they're just everywhere. So I'm going to tell you that quantum mechanics implies that. What I'm about to say doesn't work with special relativity because I just used the word simultaneous. So um, Penrose says, here's quantum mechanics, and, uh, and you're talking about a single electron in the universe, and the single electron has a probability of being anywhere in the universe. And quantum mechanics gives what the probability is anywhere. Okay? And so what Penrose says, in order to have this probability distribution, it has to be something called normalizable. Namely, it has to add up to one. Okay? In order, he says, to be physically real. So next step is, something can't be probable if it's not possible. The possibles are everywhere in the universe. Just sort of buy that. And now we're going to get to non-locality. So um, I've got these two particles, so they're a million miles apart. And quantum mechanics says that if one is measured to be up, the other will be measured to be down. That's what's puzzling us. So before measurement, either one could be the one that's up and the other one's down, but could be either way. Suppose that a first one is measured and it is up. Then instantaneously throughout the universe, the possibility that the second one is up has just vanished. Oh, I know that this is going to blow you away. L let me come back and give you something that is easier to understand for me. So suppose you and I are going to meet tomorrow at uh, uh, the, the downtown record shop and, and have orange juice. Okay? It's a date. At Joe's record. <laughs> huh? It's a date. <laughs> so it's Joe's record shop. So it's, we're going to go there tomorrow. And at noon today, a sign goes up on Joe's record shop that says, Joe's record shop is closed at noon today, and it closes. What just happened to the possibility that you and I could meet there uh, for orange juice tomorrow? The possibility vanished. Right. Agreed? Yes. It just went away. It went away the instant the store closed. No time had to elapse. And furthermore, nothing caused happened for the possibility to vanish. And if another store opened on J Street, we could meet there. So a change of an actual instantaneously and a-causally alters what's now possible. That's the insight. So once you've got that, uh, measurement converts a possible to an actual. So when you measure the first spin and its uh, electron and its spin up, that's an actual. And that changes what's possible, just like the store. So if the first particle is spin up, the possibility that the second spin is, will be measured to be up has vanished from the universe. So it can't be up. It's just like we can't meet at the store. It closed. So the only thing it can be is down. So that's non-locality. I think I lost you going around that bend. <laughs> I, I can't wait to sit with that. I'm, my only thought is that it, it, my struggle is is around the idea of causality. When there, there, my understanding of non-locality is you take these related, they're 
they're entangled, they're related, and you yeah. separate them. And the the difference is, or I guess, where is the entanglement with not only uh, you and me, but that destination at the record store? They they do seem unrelated, but I see what you mean by the potential or probabilities is the potential is shot. It's done. Yeah. Um, by the way, one way of reading about the only place I've that I've read it's in this article. It's in this article uh, taking Heisenberg's potential seriously. That's just online. Um, my next last book is Humanity in a Creative Universe. And I think it's chapter seven or something like that, if anybody wants to look at it. Oh, and it. I'll get a next. But it's for free if you just go online and get it. <laughs> um, so I think I, I actually really like this because it actually seems to explain non-locality. And I think it's a new interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, Heisenberg had it, so it's not new in that sense. Uh, I don't think it fits special relativity yet, although Ruth Kastner thinks there's a way of making it sp fit special general relativity. And again, that's sitting in this article. That's her work, not mine. Notice that it's the same thing as the mind-body problem. Right. Okay, and I haven't quite said this to myself. The, the, uh, the other spin comes to be up, but it's not causal on measurement. And somehow that is the same thing as a quantum mind having consequences for the classical world. I have never put those two together. Hmm. It's the same thing. Something becomes actual. And the profound puzzle among them is, what does it mean for a possible to become an actual? Well, you know, you write I, down in a little arrow to A, what's the arrow? Not a possible to become actual. But that's what happens in quantum measurement. If you take Ray's potential and Ray's extensa, it's not causal. It's not like billiard balls hitting billiard balls. But that is where we get qualia because the the experience is the the quality of the experience is the measurement. Somehow I like to say something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I want to claim. Claim is too strong. You know, maybe it is in the becoming. It's it's a it's a becoming. The possible becomes actual. It's in an, there's the notion of enablement that's no nowhere in physics. I don't, I don't know. And then there's something shared amongst all all the people that we have. We can at least imagine that we have similar experiences. Uh, you know, you you and I are going to taste ice cream, and it's probably going to taste you know, good to both of us. It won't taste, we can't know if it's going to taste the same to both of us. Right. Correct. Okay. Well, let's now we've kind of tended to physics here for a bit and I do want to be sensitive to your time, Stu. How long you got? Oh, maybe another 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, we'll both good. get wiped out at that point. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into, um, to, to the kind of religious question because your book is called reinventing the sacred. And I I think what we're essentially talking about is how human beings have made sense of these mysteries and sciences. One way we make sense of these mysteries, I, I hear continuously hear you say that quantum mechanics, it 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 seems like it's this vast world of probabilities that we actualize it at some point, but we can only posit a a complete mystery and and know parts of it at different times. So the the sacred is a 
you know, you, you did this really nice treatment. The, the two things I want to get to before we finish are, of, of course, the sacred, but also the ethics. And I think when people hear all people come together and talk about physics and biology and religion and philosophy, they say, okay, well, what? Like, what, what does that matter to me? And I think it's important because earlier you sent me the reminder of just recently, uh, it has been noted that by 2050, we're at risk of a million species going extinct. So no, the UN just, just come out with this report. It's staggering. Well, the, the, so, so, I, and maybe we can get to the religious question through this, the, through the ethical question, which is um, the way in which we view reality has an effect on how we live our lives and therefore how we treat ourselves and others in the world. And you referenced Genesis earlier when, when the implication, which I think is a complete mistranslation, um, not mistranslation and misinterpretation that we are to have dominion over nature. Right. Uh, and if you yeah, talk to any right. Jewish scholar, mm -hmm. they're going to tell you how wrong that interpretation is and why in Hebrew it's wrong. I know. So, yeah, Stewart's reading. <laughs> right. So, so talk a little bit about the ethical implications and maybe your your redefinition of the term God. Okay, but you brought up something that I, I I'd like to mention to you and to your listeners. I'm just reading, uh, starting to read a book called Native Science, Natural Laws of Interdependence by Gregory Cajete, uh, C-A-J-E-T-E, and it's published by Clear Light Publishing in Santa Fe, uh, the year 2000. This, it's just amazing. I mean, I just read a little bit of it. Somebody told me he was, several friends have told me he's extraordinarily able. He's talking about alternative, for example, Native American and, and, uh, and Mayan and so on, worldviews, cosmologies, uh -huh. that are radically different from Western. And they're exactly what you just pointed to. Okay, it is, it is not a supernatural God. It's not even, it's, it's closer to Spinoza's, not, you know, nature, naturing that, that Einstein liked. Um, it, you should read it. It's, uh, I will. It's, it's, it's and your readers should look at it. And, uh, the, he's, I hope to meet him sometime soon. But let's come back to it. So uh, for these traditions, for example, Native American traditions, there's no supernatural God. There's a kind of way with being with nature that I'm trying to understand. And that seems to me to be finally right and ethical, given the fact that, you know, we're destroying the planet and the gargantuan juggernaut of the global economy is invading every habitat mm -hmm. and we're going to face 20 million 20 percent of species going extinct people don't understand you know, nobody knows what that might be but pause over it john the permian extinction about 500 million years ago 480 whatever wiped out 97 94 percent of all species um it's the largest extinction event we don't know what we're triggering we may be triggering a vast collapse of the global biosphere, uh, we, I, I want to read the report, but we, we don't even know how to assess it. I do know that there's a distribution of extinction events. There's a lot of small extinction events and a few large ones, and it's a power law distribution. And a bunch of us looked at some years ago. David Rapp got the data for it assembled about 20 years ago. We have no idea how big this one's going to be. And we're, do we're doing it. We're impacting the planet, and it's our global economy by which we make a living selling and buying useless and useful things to one another. I came up with the phrase use of useless and purple plastic penguins for the poolside. 
uh, and we do it to keep our global economy going. And we're and if we don't do it, we won't have jobs, so we won't make a living, so we won't have food to eat, and we're destroying the planet. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I immediately think about the kind of structure of the psyche from a Jungian perspective, and it, it's 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 a lot like the question that I asked a, 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 my last um, participant, Barbara Brown Taylor. I was talking about how we've imagined that God made us in God's image, but on, in so many ways, we've really created God in our own image. And so the there is something about that, I don't know, I guess I, I wonder if it's really or simply a misinterpretation of important texts as much as it is a, a, a an unconsciousness of our own psyches that, that given the developmental stage of my daughter, for example, that wants to say mine and, and no, you know, to, to kind of dominate to, in order to differentiate and individuate that if we stay in that, um, I'll say differentiation stage, then we do assert our own dominance over our environment. But if we evolve out of that, we can find a way to live more in relationship and steward nature, as you said, as opposed to dominate it. I don't know if there's a question in there, but there, there's yeah, an observation. I, I agree with you. I don't think. I don't think it's a question. Yeah. Um, I really recommend. Uh, I've only read it. Let me remind you, I'm not a physicist. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm not stupid. But I'm not a physicist. So take everything I say with a substantial grain of salt. You know, go look at it yourself. Anyway, this book, Native Science really is interesting. I, I've just begun it. I, I'm, so I can't speak about it with anything more than the beginning of being aware of it. But the point that, that, that uh, I guess it's pronounced Cajete, he's at University of New Mexico, if people want to find him, um, is that there are just our worldviews that are entirely different than the Western worldview that really evolves out of the Old Testament uh, and Genesis. The, 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 he's talking about the creation myths of the Mayans and, uh, and the Egyptians, where everything comes out of a kind of creative chaos, yeah. and order emerges from that, and we participate in the whole thing. Uh, and that seems to me to be a very, very, very valuable way of thinking about being in the world. Agreed. And, and meanwhile, we're causing all these extinction events. I'm, I'm kind of pleased by this, because I had outlined a book with the title that I fell in love with called Eros and Logos. Uh, I haven't written the book, and I may never write it. But for the, for the early Greeks, uh, Eros is not yet the god of love. Eros is the god of chaos, and out of chaos comes the world, which turns out to be the same thing that the Egyptians thought and the Mayans thought. So you have a primal chaos, disorder, and then Logos, uh, which is order, which for the Greeks is the heavenly body, the heaven, the heavens move in an orderly way, but the earth is full of basically chaos and and uh, and the will of the gods and fate and it's a mess and the Trojan War and neat things. Somehow it's the same Ur image, John. It's not our image. It's not the image we get from Newton and from a mechanical universe, and we can dominate the mechanical universe and use it for our purposes. I take all knowledge to be my province to put nature on the rack and rest our due, 
that and this guy Cajete is saying it so clearly. Western view is nature is ours to use and to control. But if we cannot know what's going to arise in the adjacent possible, the the, the notion of control is just overstated. We can't control. You have no idea what's going to happen in the emerging biosphere or the emerging economy. You can't control it. It emerges unprestatably. It becomes. Well, and that makes our human threat response come up with a fury. That makes our human what? Threat response. We're terrified of it. Uncertainty. Well, yeah. some, some people are given their particular worldview, I think. I mean, I guess on some level we all are uh, concerned about change and uncertainty and unpredictability. Yeah. Well, and it's getting worse, John. I mean, uh, the rate of change, the rate of change of, of, of the world is, is exploding. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. So before we finish, I, I, again, I, at the very end of the book, you talked about God and the how you envision and why you would still use that term that's in such a long lineage. And my thought was that you're you're reimagining God not as the creator, but as creativity, the creative nature yeah. of nature. Absolutely. So again, a, a, an image of a force in the universe, a potential in the universe to reimagine, evolve, and change. Exactly so. Let's see if I can find it in this guy's book. I was just reading it half an hour ago, an hour ago. That's exactly what this guy Gregory is saying. Uh, where is it? It's all over this book. Oh, let me just read this to you. These orientations, I think he's talking about Western and Native American. These orientations form a distinctly different conceptual framework, a kind of philosophical foundation needed to repair the damage of the former cosmology, which is, I think, Western, and to create an eco-consciousness that will engender new mythologies we could live by and a transformative worldview. A uh, worldview is a set of assumptions and beliefs that form the basis of a people's comprehension of the world, the story symbols, analogies, and metaphors that express a worldview in coded form are called mythology. Worldviews are conveyed via mythology in informal, formal, unconscious, and conscious ways through family, community, art, media, uh, economic, social, governmental, and so on institutions. Uh, he's right on it. Right. Yeah. This is 2000. And he's reflecting and trying to reflect what he calls native science. It's so maybe we're at a, 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 a stage in the development of Western science with the split between art and science to come back where we started uh, with these old indigenous things that go back to, you know, uh, Mother Earth uh, 10,000 years ago. I hope we get there. Yeah. Well, the only the only other thing that I think is left hanging that I wanted to ask about, uh, which may seem like kind of a whole, I think it's a whole other conversation, but it seemed to me like one of the things you were talking about when we were discussing entanglement and um, non-locality is what we sometimes get at when we think about telepathy, how how we are connected over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
And so we've been talking about this kind of ESP and telepathy as some kind of weird paranormal uh, event, but there are, what you're saying is there are real reasons why that can happen. Yes. So you talked to John Horgan. Yeah. Uh, he interviewed John, and John had interviewed me, and it's it's up wherever John has it. Uh, complexology. It's something about t- complexologists and tragedy and and so on. So I had an experience with my daughter I uh, that I talked about, and it's available in John's book, in which I essentially foresaw some of the details of how she was killed a month later. Uh, and I, I don't want to say it again, but you can go see John's John's thing. And the question is, is I had a very specific image, and it was almost identical to the way Merritt died a month later. And the question is, is how come? How could I have? And the next day, a dear friend of mine, when I called to tell her that Merritt had died, had had a dream that night about me being in agony in my uh, in, in 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 the dining room and my wife holding me. She, my friend Linda, thought I was dying. How did Linda have that dream that night? Well. The standard answer is, is these things happen all the time and you remember the important ones. And that might be right. It is the way of throwing the phenomenon away. One account for it is, is telepathy. And telepathy is completely understandable with two steps. You simply say quantum entanglement, like the spin up and spin down electron. So my consciousness was entangled with merit somehow and mine with Linda's, who was 2,000 miles away, and we hadn't talked for eight months. And then some measurement events happens, and we have the experience. So non-locality and entanglement and a quantum mind could conceivably account for telepathy, which is why I started thinking about quantum mechanics, more or less, when Merritt died 32 years ago. I don't think it's impossible. In fact, I kind of think that it's true. And one of the things about entanglement is that it's very, very fragile. It's easy to break entanglement. If so, telepathy would be very evanescent and difficult to, to show experimentally in a, in a repeatable way. So I don't think it's ruled out at all. In fact, I think it's plausible that there's quantum mind. It answers lots of puzzles. It's, it's plausible that raised potential, raised extension explains non-locality. And it's possible that non-locality in the conscious mind explains telepathy. Mm-hmm. So... Do I think that it's true? Of course not. But sure, it doesn't rule out. Yeah, Jeff Kripal talks a lot about that, that um, meaning when events are meaningful and traumas experienced, those are, that's one of the reasons why we can't replicate it in a laboratory because you essentially uh, bracket out any kind of uh, subjectivity and therefore you you can't reimagine or re-experience intense emotion like that. You can't replicate it. That's right. And it's sort of known that telepathy is associated with intense emotion. And if telepathy is real, who knows? But I do really think it's possible. I think to 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 ignore quantum mechanics having some role in mind and consciousness is just stubborn. Mm-hmm. Very good people want to ignore it but quantum mechanics is the foundation it's the most accurate theory we have so why not think about it Stu, i can't tell you how i can't express how grateful i am other than using the words but thank you so much for this time i this is going to keep me thinking for a long 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 time and i can't wait to read all these books and papers you've recommended today yeah they're very interesting uh, and I'll recommend my own new book. It's actually good. 
uh, again, it's it's a world a world beyond physics, the emergence and evolution of life, and uh, it gets at other things. So maybe I could just mention it. Sure. Schrodinger in his life asks how how do organisms somehow evade or avoid or do something with the second law of thermodynamics, which is disorder increases. Uh, and I think there's an answer proposed to it in this new book that makes use of some ideas due to Mile Motiville and uh, Matteo Mosu called Constraint Closure. They had a fabulous set of ideas that that's, they've really done something wonderful. Well, I'll be talking about your, your books in the intro to this as well, and I'll certainly leave links for people to get in touch with you and order the books. Is, Thank you. Of course. Is there anything yeah. else in closing that we need to uh, to circle back on or any thread left hanging out? Well, there's lots of threads, of course. I've been looking at what we tried to talk about. You asked it all in your first question, John. You, you asked, what about the sciences and the arts, mm -hmm. which is, after all, humans, which is, after all, being in the world, and science is, is, is scientia is knowing. It's not acting and doing, but but organisms act and do. They don't just know. Being in the world is acting is, is all of that, right? That's left out of just scientia. Yes. Well, it's really been good, John. I'm metal and I am steel. I don't mind because I don't feel a thing. I'm a diamond ring. I'm not flesh and I'm not bone I'm not sad and I'm not all alone I'm a stone The king is dead and the queen has flown Left me here in the twilight zone Lost and looking for a way to get back home But there's no right and there's no I'll be good and I'll be strong I'll be silver and I'll be gold Without art, without even a soul I'll be cold I won't be blood and teeth and skin And I won't feel the pain I'm Left me here in the twilight zone Lost and looking for a way to get back home But there's no right and there's no wrong And I'll be good and I'll be
Cause I won't 